turn to uh, Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, this morning, verses 41 through 44. Uh, Remember that Jesus has been engaged in a series of conflicts with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They've come to him and they've asked him a question about his credentials, by what authority do you do these things? What gives you the right to come into the table and stir things up? And they came to him with a question about politics. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then another question, a question about theology. A woman is married, uh, has been married to seven men. Uh, Who is she going to be married to in heaven? Of course, all of the questions were intended to be a trap. Uh, They were trying to catch Jesus in his words in order to condemn them. But Jesus handled all of them. He turned the table uh, such that by uh, verse 40, Luke tells us that no one at this point dared to ask him any more questions. So, okay, guys, this isn't working. Jesus isn't the sort of guy we can paint into a corner or catch in his words. And so we're going to have to try something else, which is what they will do later this week um, in Luke's gospel. But now Jesus has a question of his own. Uh, After answering several questions, Jesus is going to ask his own question and uh, set the agenda. And I wonder, you you might know what's coming before we read, but I I wonder what you might think Jesus would ask. Uh, This is one of the the last times Jesus will uh, teach and speak publicly. Um, Much after this, Jesus is speaking mostly to his disciples, and so you Ask the question, what, what do you think Jesus wants to focus on? What sort of question will Jesus ask? Uh, before we read and find out, let's pray briefly and ask for God's help as we study his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us this word which teaches us about who Jesus Christ is. We pray now that we would hear the Lord Jesus speak to his church and submit to him as Lord of all. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Let's hear God's word, Luke 20, beginning in verse 41. But he, that is Jesus, said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Thus, David calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Now, without a little bit of background, that might seem like a dud. (laughs) Is that really where you want to go, Jesus? Is that really the question that you want to ask? It sounds kind of like a technical question. Seems to be some kind of wordplay. Lord said to my Lord... Is this really the debate that you want to get involved in, Jesus? Don't you want to ask something that's perhaps more practical? Why this question? Well, to answer that, I think we need to understand some of the background. In the first century, the Jews were expecting a Messiah. Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah. And there were a lot of expectations surrounding the Messiah, but one thing the people were all agreed upon was that the Messiah would be a son of David. So in 2 Samuel, the Lord says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you 
who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there was that promise. And of course, David had a son. His name was Solomon. Solomon uh, was king. He built the temple. He had a throne. But of course, Solomon didn't live forever. And eventually, Jerusalem itself was destroyed and the temple brought to ruin. And there's no king upon the throne. And so the, the people understood that this was a prophecy about the Messiah who was to come. That the fulfillment of this promise given to King David was a promise that was to be fulfilled in the coming Messiah. And there's lots of prophecies about the, this coming Messiah being a son of David. Think of Isaiah 11. There will be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. He would be a son of David. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 3. When he refers to Christ as descended from David according to the flesh. And we saw blind Bartimaeus not too long ago in the gospel of Luke. As Jesus was making his way to the city of Jerusalem. Um, and he's passed through Jericho. And blind Bartimaeus cries out from the side of the path. Jesus son of David have mercy upon me. Here's this blind man who is able to see what many during his day were unable to see that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ. So here's the question that Jesus is raising. Will the Christ be merely the son of David? Or is there something more that we can say about Christ? Now, Jesus quotes from Psalm 110. You know, here's some interesting Bible trivia for you. Psalm 110 is... It's an Old Testament passage that is quoted or alluded to more often than any other Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Uh, one commentator counts 33 allusions to Psalm 110 in the New Testament. Uh, this is just a guess on my part, but I'm guessing that Psalm 110 um, probably isn't one of our favorite passages in the Bible. I'd be surprised if any of you have a life verse in Psalm 110, and yet for Jesus, Psalm 110 was absolutely fundamental to his understanding of his own identity and what the apostles taught about who Jesus Christ is. So maybe turn to Psalm 110 or just remember from, from uh, reading it a moment ago and let me comment a few, uh, say a few words about Psalm 110. There really, there really are two layers of meaning to this psalm. First, it was it was a coronation psalm. It would, it would have been sung or chanted or recited when the king would take his throne. So the Lord God says to the Lord our king, you're going to be victorious. You're going to conquer. But of course there was, a, there was another level to it. There, it was widely believed that this was a messianic psalm. You know, and so much of the Old Testament reads this way, doesn't it? There's a, there's a near fulfillment and there's a fuller fulfillment. We're not talking here about secret uh, meanings or um, hidden layers of meaning or codes that need to be deciphered. The people understood, though, okay, this, this is, in one sense, this is about our king. But when you read through this psalm, you get the sense, don't you, that, well, this, this also has to be 
about someone who's much bigger than our king. This isn't simply about King David or, or King Solomon. And so by Jesus' day, it was recognized that Psalm 110 was a prophetic psalm about the Messiah, that there was a fuller meaning to be fulfilled in the coming Christ. So take a look at what the psalm says. There are two parts to it that are marked out by two things that the Lord says. Verse 1, the Lord says, sit at my right hand, which is the position of honor. So the Messiah would be a king. And the second thing that the Lord says about his Messiah is there in verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this Messiah will be both priest and king. But who's this Melchizedek guy? Uh, the name comes from two Hebrew names, Melech, king, Zedek, righteousness, king of righteousness. And uh, he appears seemingly out of nowhere in Genesis 14. Uh, Abraham, Abram has uh, rescued his nephew Lot, and he's coming out, and he's, he's greeted by this individual uh, called Melchizedek, king of Salem, uh, priest of God most high. And Melchizedek blesses Abram, a sign that Melchizedek is superior to Abram. And Abram, Abram gives a tenth of his possessions to Melchizedek. And that's basically all we hear about him until this psalm. And, and then later on in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews will teach us that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So all, all of the priests of the Old Testament were priests after the order of Aaron. He was a, he was a Levite. So this is, this is different because Jesus wasn't a Levite. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. So he's a different sort of priest, as we'll see a little bit later. But come, back, come back to Jesus' question in Luke. There is this, this word play here with the word Lord. Maybe you noticed as we were reading the psalm that the first Lord is all caps. And that's the English translation's way of telling you that behind this English word is the Hebrew word Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And the second Lord is capital L and then lowercase letters, O-R-D, translating the word Adonai. Now by the time you get to the first century, people had such a reverence for the covenant name of God, which was really bordering on superstition, they wouldn't they wouldn't even pronounce the covenant name of God out loud. They wouldn't say it. They would just say Adonai in its place. So the, the Greek just translates it the same. Kyrios said to my Kyrios. The Lord said to my Lord. But what's Jesus getting at here? Here's his question. How can the Christ be David's son and also David's Lord? And he's not rejecting the idea that the Christ would be the son of David. He's suggesting instead that there's something more to say about this Christ. What sort of Messiah must he be if David calls him his Lord? Right? This is King David. Who is, who is superior to great King David that he would call him Lord? This individual must not be just any other earthly king. What, what sort of father says this about his son. You think about it this way. I, I love Eli, but you might raise an eyebrow if I start calling out to him, uh, Lord Eli. 
That ought to sound pretty strange to our ears. So how can this man be both David's son and David's Lord? See what Jesus is doing. He's, he's leading to a conclusion that the Christ is not just the son of David, but the Lord of David. And, and the stakes at this point are pretty high. Because you'll remember, you know, Peter has already confessed that Jesus is the Christ. Later on, Jesus himself will say to the high priest while he's on trial, yes, I am the Christ. And so I think maybe, uh, maybe here are some pe people are listening to this and starting to put the pieces together. They're starting to connect the dots. The lights are coming on and they're thinking, I think, I think I'm starting to get it. I think I understand what Jesus is teaching. That what he is teaching about the Messiah, he is saying about himself. And so here, here he is, proclaiming himself as Lord. Jesus is Lord. That was the central confession of Christians in the early church. You remember Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In 1 Corinthians 12.3, no one says Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. I think we're somewhat at a disadvantage, perhaps, because the language has become so familiar to us that we don't actually hear what we're saying anymore. <laughs> Jesus is Lord. Just put another name in the place of Jesus for a second and you'll start to hear how strange that sounds to speak of a human person as Lord. This is one of the reasons the early Christians got themselves into so much trouble in the Roman Empire. Because of course throughout the Roman Empire the idea is Caesar is Lord. Caesar is a, a son of the divine. Remember Augustus proclaimed himself on the coin, son of the divine Augustus. And Christians were saying emphatically, no, 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 no. There is but one Lord and his name is Jesus Christ. You see, the early Christians, they, they believed in a big Jesus. They had a large view of who Jesus is. But I think today we live in a day of small Jesuses. You know, if the central confession of the church was Jesus is Lord, the confession today is Jesus is friend, Jesus is my homeboy, Jesus is guru, Jesus is therapeutic, Jesus is unconditional love. And of course, there's an element of truth to some of those things, but as central confessions about the identity of Jesus, they're all false because they don't say enough. So many churches today are offering a small Jesus. So what I want us to think about for just a few moments today is what, what are we actually confessing when together we confess Jesus is Lord? Let's say four things. First thing that we mean by that is Jesus is the Lord God. Uh, go to 1 Corinthians 8. I'm going to ask you to turn to some passages this morning. The first is 1 Corinthians 8. And here Paul is addressing 
the issue of, of food sacrifice to idols. There's a lot of idols and people would offer food to the idols. And so these early Christians are wondering, was it, is it okay for us to, to purchase this food in the marketplace that has been offered to idols? It was a big question in the early church. Um, so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we all exist. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul says, okay, Idols, they're not real gods. And then what he does is he, he quotes the Shema. He, he alludes to that famous passage that we call the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Shema, Hebrew word for hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, is one. And in verse 4, Paul says there is no God but one. You hear, you hear the allusion there. Makes sense. You follow, following the logic of the Apostle Paul here. Look, these idols are not real gods. Because we confess there is only one God. But look at what he does in, Roman, uh, in, in verse 6. He comments on the Shema by saying, There is for us one God, just like Deuteronomy says. There is one God, the Father, uh, for whom are all things, and the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we exist. See what Paul is doing. Paul puts Christ right in the middle of the central confession of biblical monotheism. He, he says, yes, we confess there's only one God. You know him as Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, along with the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. So he puts Jesus here. Jesus is this Lord God we worship, the one we must love with all of our hearts. So dear friends, if, if you love your family, you love sports, you love your hobbies, you love your career or, or whatever it is and you do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, then you do not love the one who is most worthy of your love and affection. And let's just draw out some application here. If you truly love Jesus as the Lord God, what's the implication of that? Then, then you, will, you will listen to him. Remember what Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. You obey him, you recognize him as Lord. And that means that you will have the same attitude about this book, the Bible, that Jesus Christ himself had about the scriptures. Don't, don't miss what Jesus is doing in this passage. He is asking this question about... Um, about the Messiah, to reveal something about his identity, but on what basis is Jesus doing it? Did you catch what Jesus is doing? He's basing his argument upon Scripture. And we live in a day where we're, we will frequently try to talk to people about our faith, even perhaps fellow Christians, and you may hear in response, well, that's just your interpretation. I have my own. How can we ever really know what uh, the original author really meant? 
you have your interpretation, I have mine, and that's as far as we can go. And you know, that, that is kind of pitched as a position of humility, but it's actually a position of pride because it's communicating that God himself is incapable of communicating to us as his creatures in such a way that we can understand. Jesus believed Psalm 110 had a meaning. Jesus believed Psalm 110 had a correct interpretation. And Jesus made his argument on the basis of Scripture because Jesus believed that Scripture is the breathed out authoritative word of God. And so, dear friends, at the end of the day, there are really only two ways to approach the Bible. One is to say, you know, where I don't like what this book says, it has to change. You may say, I... That, that can't be right. That doesn't, that doesn't fit with how I'm feeling. That doesn't fit with what my friends are saying. It doesn't fit with the cult, what the culture around me is thinking or saying. It doesn't fit with my desires. So scripture must conform to me. That's one way of approaching it. But the other way is to say, to come to the Bible and say, if, if this book finds something wrong in me, if this, if this book convicts uh, something that is twisted in me, then I must change. I will not sit as judge in my feeble senses. I will, not, I, I will let it evaluate me. I will let its terms define my terms. I will let its story define my story. Because, you see, what, what's the motivation? Because you love Jesus. Because you love Jesus and you love the scriptures, the same scriptures that Jesus loved. So when we confess that Jesus is Lord, we're saying that Jesus is the Lord God, worthy of our love and obedience. And secondly, we're saying that Jesus is the only Lord. So go to an Old Testament passage, Isaiah 45. In Isaiah 45, it's another passage talking about idolatry. God is hammering away at the idols, telling his people he's the only God. So listen to Isaiah 45, verse 18. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. And jump down to verse 21. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and Savior there is none besides me. Verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. Now listen closely to this. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now, does that ring a bell? Does that language from Isaiah 45, verse 23, sound familiar to you? Here is one of the classic chapters in the Bible about the absolute monotheistic commitment of God's people. There's one God, no other God. There's one Savior, no other Savior. He's the only God, the only Savior. Now, now listen to Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, Bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have you ever thought about how remarkable that passage is in Philippians chapter 2? What Paul is actually doing. He's quoting, he's at least alluding to Isaiah 45, the very passage where God says, I'm the only God, there's no other God, I'm the only Savior, there's no other Savior. And Paul is saying, that's absolutely right. And as it says about God in Isaiah, every knee will bow and tongue will confess. We now say and confess that about Jesus, that every knee will bow and tongue will confess because he is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, this is one of the big issues today. And the issue is this, do you have, do you have Jesus plus or Jesus only? Jesus plus will get you a lot of friends, a lot of acceptability, respectability, cultural clout. But if you say Jesus only, and there is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved, well you're going to get a very different response. That's a different story altogether. Jesus is the Lord God. Jesus is the only Lord. And thirdly, he's the conquering Lord. Do you notice that in Psalm 110? The the enemies are made a footstool under his feet. The enemies are placed under his feet. Revelation 17 verse 14, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer him for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And we must always remember that the Lord Jesus is a conquering king and a suffering servant. But the thing is, today you'll, you'll rarely find people who want to rejoice in both of those things at the same time. You have some who are ready to receive Jesus as Savior, who, who, who want to take some of the benefits of Christ, of forgiveness and reconciliation with God, but they don't want to recognize him as any sort of Lord or King or judge over their lives. In some sense, in the first century, it was the other way around. These people just wanted a Messiah who would be a king coming in judgment. They wanted someone who's going to knock some Roman heads around, get them out of here, chase them out of town, restore Israel to her former glory. And I think we tend to look at them with our noses up. But let's recognize that they would look at us who who may tend to so emphasize the atoning work of Jesus while we underemphasize the kingship of Jesus. And, And they might have been led to think, well, you Christians must not care very much about justice. I suppose those folks in America don't really know what it's like to be oppressed. Maybe we're just so used to being on the top and having things go our way that we don't want a God who would have to conquer anyone or anything. But you see, it's absolutely fundamental and essential to the Christian faith and the Christian gospel that we confess that Jesus Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. To judge the world. Revelation 22, one of the ways it ends is by God's people crying out, come Lord Jesus, come. 
What are we praying when we say those words? We're not saying, come Lord Jesus and give the world a group hug. We're saying, come Lord Jesus and set this world right. Come, come Lord Jesus and vindicate your people. Come and give the humble poor a break. Come and give the prideful and the arrogant what's coming to them. Put an end to oppression. Put an end to evil. We are saying, Jesus, you are the Lord of all of this. Come and redeem what rightfully belongs to you. Glorify your Father in salvation and judgment. Come, Lord Jesus, come. So we have a conquering Lord. And then fourth and last, we have a priestly Lord. Uh, In Hebrews chapter 7, we see that Jesus is not like other priests, the priests that we see in the Old Testament. The other priests would go and they would offer the blood of, of bulls and goats. But Jesus is a different sort of high priest because he offered a sacrifice once for all and he offered his very own lifeblood. So this is a Lord who, who lays down his life. And here's what happens. People, people made one of two mistakes. Some people never get to the, the, the lay down his life part. They, right? they just want a Christ who's strong and mighty and kingly and, and has dominion and rules and drives out enemies and conquers. But other people don't know what it means that, that Jesus is Lord. And, and they end up with a... Little, weak, insignificant Jesus. But if you skip over all of the biblical ways that Jesus Christ is exalted as Lord, then you will miss completely how stunning it is that this Lord Jesus laid down his life on Calvary's cross to redeem us and reconcile us to God. It's only when you understand all that it means that Jesus is Lord, the creator, the sustainer, the king of the universe, the one who rules over all. That you will stand in awe of the fact that it is this Lord who gave up his body, who laid down his life upon Calvary's cross. Now, I know some of us, actually all of us, have questions that we would like to ask Jesus. Some of you might want to know about the why of some suffering in your life. Some of you want to ask Jesus, why is is this crook in my lot? Some of you might want to ask Jesus about why certain things happened to you in your childhood the way that they did. Some of you might be wondering about your future. Some of you might want to ask questions about, will I ever, ever get married? Some of you want to know what's going to happen with your kids. Those are all uh, legitimate questions. We all have questions, but have you considered the fact that Jesus has a question for us, for you? At the end of the day of questions, the question at the end of the day is this, is Jesus Lord? Is he Lord? Some of you are committed and by the grace of God believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I believe this passage is here today, um, before us today, to encourage you, to bolster your faith, to strengthen and anchor you and to remind you that you do not serve an insignificant, weak little Jesus. You, You follow a Jesus who is Lord, the Lord God. 
the only Lord, the, the Lord who conquers, the Lord who laid down his life to redeem you. But some of you, some of you aren't committed. Some of you are compromised. And by, that I, by that I mean you, you, you say the words, you say the words, Jesus is Lord, you say it out loud, but you're not, you're not really saying it. And that says everything. You might say the words with your mouth, but your life communicates something entirely different. You're compromised. Jesus is Lord is an empty, vacuous statement. Because you, you don't, at the end of the day, you don't, you don't want a Lord, you want a lackey. You, you don't want a Lord, you want a genie. You want somebody who's going to do you some favors, who's going to solve your problems, who's going to be there when you find yourself in a hard place. But dear friends, Jesus is not a lackey or a genie. Jesus Jesus is Lord. Others here today, you might not be committed or compromised. You might be considering. You're thinking about Jesus. And maybe this is where, where some of the covenant kids are at. Some of you who have grown up in the church and you've been listening to God's word being taught and preached and your parents have been sharing it with you at home and you're you're just beginning to seriously consider, who, who is this Jesus? What do I make of him? And that's good. I'm glad. I hope that's where you are. Actually, I hope you take the step to closing with this Jesus. But all I want to say to you, if you're in the position of considering, is don't sit on the fence for a long time. You have to think, what, what do I do with, with this Jesus? What do I make of him? Jesus doesn't give you the, the option of weighing the option for a lifetime. He thought he was not only David's son, but David's Lord. And that's true, actually, whether we believe it or not. It's not as though Jesus is waiting for you to give him some title that he doesn't already possess. Jesus is Lord, whether you love it or you hate it, but the important question for you is what do you make of the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life he is David's son and lord nothing will change that what I want to urge you to consider today is is he my savior is he my lord am I able to by the grace of God confess from my heart Jesus is lord that's a confession I make gladly because I have surrendered my life to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is only by the grace of the Holy Spirit that we confess that Jesus is Lord. So we bow our knee and confess with our tongue that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the Lord God, the only Lord, the Lord who who has conquered sin and Satan and death and the Lord who laid down his life to redeem his own. And I pray that that would be the confession, the glad confession of each and every one of us here this morning. And I ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.